0: This podcast is intended as healthcare practitioner education only and is not a
1: substitute for medical advice, diagnosis or treatment.
2: I'd say across the board, a good 75% of my patients present with anxiety. That's adults and children. With kids, it's certainly becoming more prevalent.
1: So with anxiety, I would say, of course, the emotional environment plays a big role. Whether there's a harmonious family life, whether the children get all the attention care that they need, positive parenting is so important rather than punishment, and um, whether they're well attached to their parents. This is Bioconcepts Between Clinical Minds, the podcast
0: that's open-minded enough to take in all sides of a clinical story. You'll hear from researchers, doctors, naturopaths, nutritionists, and patients we look at common clinical presentations through a different lens. It's open, frank, and sometimes controversial. Nothing is off limits. Will it change the way you treat? We'll leave that up to you. In season one of Bioconcepts Between Clinical Minds, we look at children's health. We talk to experts in the field who will take you into their clinics and share their experience. We'll hear the inspirational stories of change from patients and their families along their healing journey. I'm Tony Chambers, and this is Bioconcepts Between Clinical Minds. In this episode of Between Clinical Minds, we talk to integrative paediatrician, Dr. Layla Mason and Victorian family naturopath, Emma Wisby about the most common mental health conditions they treat in children. Dr. Layla Mason is a consultant paediatrician specializing in nutritional and environmental medicine with two grown children of her own.
1: So in my clinic, I see a lot of children with anxiety. And O C D behaviors, also ADHD and autism. And some some kids with oppositional defiant behavior and just a very low frustration tolerance. So really a mix of all the major mental health issues that we in children.
0: And do you know, can you tell at all or or, or talk about any of the um, contributing
1: factors? Well, I think, you know, mental health and health start long before a baby is born with the mother's and the father's health and all the environmental um, exposures during the pregnancies and the nutritional status of the mom. So there's so many things that you can do When you're even just thinking of conceiving, to get into really good health as a as a couple, you know, to avoid toxins, avoid alcohol, nicotine, of course, but you know, in particular, the ones that we can avoid are, for example, mercury and lead. So high mercury levels affect mental health, and our main exposure to mercury is now from fish. And I measure a lot of children's mercury level when they're come in with anxiety or depression or hyperactivity. And often they have very high levels and it's a pure toxin. There is no good amount of mercury um, in the body. And it comes from eating large fish because the mercury from the environment settles into the ocean and then settles to the ground and accumulates as you go up the food chain from tiny, tiny little animals or even algae up to the large fish. So if you eat a lot of tuna... Or swordfish, or catfish, or any of these, you may have quite a high level of mercury in your body, and that happens also before pregnancy and in pregnancy. So the baby's mm. brain then is already exposed to that. Same with lead. You know, I've had patients with severe anxiety who are actually were exposed to lead from antique furniture, mm. or you know, with old paint on it, and mm. that definitely affects the brain. And mm. With everything, um, I think it's always better to prevent than Mm. to have to fix things. So if you can live as much as possible in a toxin-free lifestyle
0: Mm. while you're
1: conceiving, while you're pregnant, and then while you're raising your children, you will have healthier and happier children. Do you see a lot of children with anxiety who have um, been exposed to mercury i do see children who have been exposed to those things but i also see a lot of kids with anxiety who don't have those exposures who just so with anxiety i would say of course the emotional environment plays a big role whether there's a harmonious family life whether the children get all the attention care that they need positive parenting is so important rather than punishment. And whether they're well attached to their parents, that's really important as well. Whether they're stressed at school or bullied, all of those things, you know, very important. And then the next thing is, I think there's these four pillars really of of good health, mental health and physical health that very, very few children in Australia actually get And that's enough sleep, enough quality sleep. We have an epidemic of sleep deprivation. And if you even just sleep half an hour less per night than you need to, you're not going to be as happy and as well-functioning during the day as if you had had enough sleep. Mm -hmm. Then good nutrition, you know, and 95% of Australians eat a standard Australian diet. That's why it's called standard, the SAD diet, Mm -hmm. which is mostly processed and even hyper ultra-processed. And that doesn't give you calories, but it doesn't give you the nutrients you need to thrive. So, you know, you may get, you know, a lot of it is white flour and sugar and bad oil. So you you get enough calories to grow. And, you know, we have an epidemic of obesity as well because of that, because you get Mm -hmm. the calories, but you don't get the nutrients, but you're lacking your fiber, your zinc, your iron, your magnesium, all of those, which you need for good mental health and physical health as well. Mm-hmm. then the toxins we talked about already and then lifestyle so enough exercise enough time spent in nature not too much time spent in front of screens those are so important i mean our the generation of parents today spend twice as much time outdoors than the children of today and you know, it goes down every year. Less time spent outside, more time spent in front of screens. And it's we're just not evolved to live like that. Our brains are evolved to thrive when we're outside, ideally in nature. You know, there's this beautiful Japanese old old custom of forest bathing, <laughs> which mm. I love, which basically is just going for a walk in the in the in the woods, mm. or even at the ocean, or anywhere in a park, and it, there's. A huge amount of research being done into that right now, the effect of being in nature on the brain. And in particular, in children, it calms them. It can have as much of an effect on the calming as a dose of Ritalin. Mm-hmm. It makes them more focused, more creative in their problem solving, happier. And, um, you know, there was this beautiful book um by Richard Louv called The Last Child in the Woods, and he created the term of nature deficit disorder, which has become a big buzzword now because nobody spends enough time in nature anymore, and we need to. I've
0: got two teenage boys now, and I feel like the influence of their peers and the influence of social media and just the fact that you can't, you know, make them get in the car with you and go to the, um, mm. to go for a bushwalk. Do you feel that those uh,
1: influences become too strong in the teenage, particularly in that older group that you're, you're seeing with the teenage? Yeah, I mean, it, it becomes difficult because everyone else is sitting in front of a screen, you know, mm. and you can't take a 15 year old and move. <laughs> Horror, you know, they have to want to. So I, I do understand that, but I think if, you kind of nurture that love for nature from early on Mm. and just make it at least you know Sundays everybody the whole family goes together for a walk or to the beach just make that so that you have once a week that dose of nature and then during during the week maybe just if you have a garden or if you have a park nearby just encourage them or if you have a dog make the kids take the dog for the walk (laughs) because it is really really important you know and I think the younger we get kids used to it and the more they love it, the more they will do it. So, mm-hmm. but I agree with you, you know, the their peers, if they fall in with a group of peers that just want to play computer games, it's going to be very hard. Mm-hmm. So, and you don't have that much influence on which group of friends your children choose, except mm-hmm. by, you know, kind of setting them up early for mm-hmm. a love for exercise and nature and those things. And I mean, it does make a different, big difference what you do. Mm. It's not what you say to them to do, but what you actually do. Do you go for walk every day? Do you, you know, model that kind of behavior? I think that's really important as well. And, mm. you know, teenagers are difficult. I mean, I think a lot of kids between 15 and 17 or 14 and 17 won't do anything you tell them to do, but they still watch you and they still take in what you do. And eventually they'll turn around. <laughs> So do you ever have to prescribe medications or, or anything else to them while you're there on this journey? So I always look at what are the nutritional factors that may be lacking. And most of the time, just by fixing those, I do not need to prescribe any kind of medication and I think I mean the medication that is approved is an SSRI and we don't really have great long-term studies mm. on that reassure me that there's no negative effect on brain development by putting mm. a child on that. Mm. So, I start by looking by examining the child of course, you know, and looking for clues, for example, if they look very pale, then I think, well, maybe this child is iron or B12 deficient or they're very tired. Um, Do they have a coating on their tongue, maybe a bad gut flora, their skin? Do they have that sandpapery, rough, dry skin on their upper arms? That would make me think maybe low omega-3, which -hmm. is also really important for mood and behavior Mm -hmm. and white spots on the fingernails. Tell me that the child is probably zinc deficient and um, or if they have really red Kind of fingertips, if you look at the end of the text, if they're quite bright red, then that makes me think that maybe the child does have some toxins like lead or mercury in mm. him or her. So, you know, I examine the whole child, look at, are they bloated? Do they have any other skin rashes? And then I usually will order, depending on the age of the child, some tests. If they are um, old enough and willing to have a blood test and I'll do a blood test, And check for iron, B12, zinc, full blood count, you know, if I suspect that they may have um, some toxicities, I check for that. There is a specific type of acute onset of anxiety called PANS, where a child has an infection. Mm -hmm. And then within a very short time after that, has an acute onset, a real change in mood and behavior of severe anxiety, separation anxiety, and usually associated with OCD Mm -hmm. behaviors and sometimes tics. That's called PANS, Pediatric Mm -hmm. Acute Onset Neuropsychiatric Syndrome. And if I suspect something like that, then I will also check for autoimmune markers and for antibodies to streptococci, for example, Mm -hmm. or depending on Mm -hmm. what infection the child had before that onset that's quite easily treated and so i'll check you know quite broadly vitamin d is another one i check and you know surprisingly kids in australia very rarely have high vitamin d because mm-hmm. in the winter the sun is actually at an angle where it doesn't produce enough vitamin d in the skin and in the summer we have to be so careful not to burn that we may overdo it a bit with slip slap slop and mm-hmm. the children actually don't get that much sunshine So if the children are low in vitamin D, that will cause either depression or anxiety or, you know, low moods Mm. and can also affect their general health. So there's quite a few things that I can, can search depending on how the child presents Mm. and then treat. Mm. And if they have a history of bad, you know, of any kind of gut issues, I may check for gut flora. I mean, I see a lot of irritable children who actually have, you know, a pathogens like giardia or pinworms. Mm. And mm. treating those lifts their mood very, very quickly, you know, because mm. they can finally sleep well mm. and the inflammation from the gut is gone and they start to absorb their nutrients because they don't have diarrhea anymore. Mm. So, you know, there's so many different potential causes for issues with mood and behavior. And it's almost like a detective game, you know, you really try mm. and figure out what it is for each particular child. And once you get it, it's so wonderful to see the child turn around just by addressing that issue rather than masking the symptoms with a drug.
0: And do you see a lot of children coming in who are already on medications? Because the, the, the statistics on children taking medications is actually quite high, isn't it?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I see a lot of kids who come in on ADHD medication and are not doing well on it, where the Mm -hmm. parents say, you know, my child has lost weight or is very, very upset every afternoon when the medication wears off or it hasn't really helped and they want to get the child off the medication. And then we can do that. You know, we can, again, with ADHD, you can look for the underlying causes. Very often Mm -hmm. these kids are typically the kids who eat an additive laden diet with lots of artificial colors and preservatives Mm. and sugar and not a lot of vegetables and whole grains. And then um, they don't get enough exercise and they don't spend time in nature. They don't get enough sleep. You know, all of those things together can make a child present with symptoms of ADHD. Fixing it helps usually, not always, but but most Mm. of the time. And what about that histamine balance? Does that come into play with kids? I mean, I look at histamine in children with um, allergies and certainly Mm. there are children with allergies who don't have obvious symptoms of allergies. But when you test them, they look, you know, they have the dark circles under their eyes and the Mm. creases and um, when you, and they sniffle maybe or have mm. a little bit of skin rashes, but nothing major. And when, you, when I test them, they turn out to have quite bad allergies. And when I address those allergies, maybe by taking out the foods they're allergic to for a little while or by reducing dust mite exposure, that's a very common one, um, mm. they get much calmer. And I've had children who told their parents of it's my inner itch is gone. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and suddenly they were able to sit down calmly and, and do their work rather than being constantly fidgety and moving around. Mm. So I think, um, yeah, in that regard, I look at histamine and, um, and the MTHFR. I find, yes, the MTHFR is a, a, you know, a genetic variation, but when you look at methylation, there's so many other genetic markers for methylation that we're Mm. we're finding new ones every few months, that the MTHFR is a little bit of like just a snapshot, really. Mm. If people have, you know, like homozygous SNPs for both MTHFR genes that we can test easily, yes, then it may help them to get some methyl B12 or some folinic acid, you know, some methylation support. And clearly it will help them to reduce toxic exposures because they won't be as good as detoxing and they often do better on that. But I, you know, I think it's a, it's a little bit too limited. I think Mm. if you want to look at genes, you actually need to look at a lot more of the genes, but even Mm. then we don't really know the effect, the full effect. And even if you have a SNP, you you still have a certain, there are other genes that overlap with the function of each gene Mm. that may take up the function. So I think, this is still a very new era, the, the, the functional genetic testing. And I prefer the functional, actually the metabolic testing to see how is the child actually methylating or mm. how, is, you know, those kind of things or so how is the folinic acid cycle functioning rather than looking at the genes.
0: And what other environmental aspects do you see playing a big role in these mental
1: health conditions that you're treating, apart from the mercury and the lead? Well, mould is a big yes. one. Yes. So, um, Australia is an amazing country. (laughs) I love it, but there's a lot of mold. (laughs) So if people, I mean, especially if the whole family is kind of suffering, maybe some have more respiratory symptoms and some more anxiety and sleep issues and, you know, various things. And I think, oh, could there be something in the house that is affecting everyone? And, um, I always ask about mold. And often the family says, yes, actually there is some mold. And then I get them to have a building biologist to come and check out the house and remove the mold whichever way possible. And of course, you can't really just remove mold. You have to improve ventilation. Mm -hmm. You have to reduce humidity. But there's lots of things you can do for that. Um, But I certainly have seen lots of moms and children who were exposed to mold super anxious. And once they are moved, that's usually the best <laughs> intervention. Um, they got much, much better.
0: For people who are exposed to mold, what are the things that have you, have you have you used any natural kind of ways of of helping these people?
1: Yeah, so I mean, the number one thing really is to remove the mold. Yeah, mm. get out of the moldy place. And I mean, often it's the mattress. I mean, I've had kids who've been sleeping mm. on moldy mattresses. And once they finally looked at the mattress, they saw the the black mold and threw it out. And that was the thing to do mm. or under the bed or behind, you know, so there's often you can very quickly remove the biggest exposure. Mm. And then things you can do is you can use binders. So, um, you know, short term, you can use something like charcoal if it's mm. really, really bad. But I wouldn't do that long term because it also absorbs binds nutrients but citrus pectin or apple pectin what you use for making jam cheap (laughs) you can you know mix a quarter teaspoon of that and a little bit of liquid or food and um, give it to the child at bedtime and that will bind the toxins during the night so that they don't get reabsorbed into the body and the child can excrete them the next day and then um, if the child has lots of symptoms of of mold or yeast. So maybe skin rashes or white coating on the tongue, waking up at, you know, the early hours of the mornings, like one or two or three and silly and giggly and wide awake. Those are kind of typical symptoms of of yeast or mold. You may want to use something antifungal. So, you know, there are lots of options like olive leaf extract, tiger, um, you know, you want to use gentle things in children. Mm, <laughs> you don't want yes. to use um, oregano oil for months and months or uva ursi. Those things are a bit strong for children. You can mm. use them short term if you know that the child needs that. But even grapefruit seed extract I find um, mm. often helpful. Mm. So my, my favorite is olive leaf because it's so gentle mm. and okay. you can, you know, and tastes good and you just start with a low dose. So all of those things can help to reduce um, mold in the body and just really making sure that the child has healthy daily bowel motions. Mm -hmm. So whatever is in there comes out. But as I said, the most important thing with mold is to get away from the mold. Your body will clear itself from the mold over time. Mm -hmm. And I have had so many patients who said, oh, my child is so, you know, doesn't sleep and is hyperactive and irritable and anxious. But whenever we go on a holiday, the child is completely fine. Mm -hmm. Or when we go to stay with my parents, they're fine. And, you know, so it is something in the house and often mould. And when you, you know, it can, the difference can be very quick.
0: Emma Wisby has a naturopathic practice in Geelong with a family and mental health focus. The predominant mental health condition she sees is anxiety.
2: Well, I'd I'd say across the board, a good 75% of my patients present with anxiety. That's adults and children. With kids, it's certainly becoming more prevalent and um, certainly with the, the recent pandemic, it's either a presentation, um, so presenting complaint, or in some cases, it's something that we unravel as part of what uh, we're looking at from a health perspective.
0: What do you think is driving this increase in anxiety? And it is in the stats as well, this increase in anxiety. I
2: think part of it is the world that we live in. I think uh, it's been very quick transition from, you know, an eight-hour working day where our grandparents had eight hours work, eight hours rest, eight hours play, through to our kids now don't even get eight hours rest. They've got school and after-school activities and social commitments. Um, So, I think part of it is environment. Obviously, we've got technology and screens and, and stimulating components in our environment that are over-stimulating our kids' nervous systems. And then obviously we've got lots of sleep uh, disruption there as well. And just general health, I think, is changing. I think the nervous system is, is fast sort of being affected by the way that we live our lives.
0: So how then do you approach a case when you see um, you know, a child, let's say, even a teenager come in presenting with anxiety? Where do you start with that person?
2: There's um, usually lots to discuss. My my first comment usually with the kids and the parents is just reassuring them that the brain and symptoms of the brain is no different to coming in with a skin rash or, you know, a tummy trouble. Um, So just ensuring them that it's not that sort of stigmatised mental health domain of, you know, something that they should control or or be um, able to to deal with. So really sort of um, highlighting to them that it's a a physical symptom and the brain is an organ of the body and we're going to sort of unravel things from the head down. And then we just do the usual case taking stuff. I just leave no stone unturned and we go through each system of the body. With kids, I do really like to go right back to mum's pregnancy, birth, whether they were breastfed or not. Most teenagers dislike this part of the conversation um, because they've moved on from being sort of younger dependent children, but that really helps us to build the picture. I'm also really keen to know lots about family history as well. We're seeing in the research that, you know, survivors of the Holocaust, um, uh, certainly uh, the generational uh, patients of, of generational descendants of those um, people have got, you know, varying different health complaints that are related. We see it a lot with heavy metals as well, you know, grandparents working in the mines and that coming through with, say, aluminium toxicity in kids. So I think with case taking, we need to go back as far as we possibly can as well. And really then just piecing that puzzle together as best we can, So sort of looking at history, looking at current physical symptoms and that whole person, and then looking at their environment
0: when you're kind of unraveling in and getting into their backstory, are you finding any kind of common links or common exposures or common backgrounds that are leading to pictures of anxiety?
2: It more so just to sort of help the parent in particular understand what might be happening, because for parents too there can be a lot of guilt around their child not feeling well and you know ex- having this extreme anxiety and the, and the parents often trying to say you know our home life's great and it's a loving family and there's no issues you know my, us as parents are still together but when we look back through the family history it could be that there's some really profound grief or loss or devastation with you know grandparents and so it's important i think families to understand that that epigenetics is occurring and we're seeing it presenting in our kids more so than we were seeing it presenting in ourselves um, when we were growing up.
0: How do we as naturopaths talk to our patients about those things? I mean, giving them supplements and asking them to change their diet is really quite simple for us. <laughs> what about those other things about uh, the their life that we all lead? <laughs> If we're looking at diet,
2: I'd like the child to be involved in that and certainly teenagers definitely need to be involved in in that process. And really a lot of it comes down to what is attainable for those patients as well. I mean sometimes we can't change the fact that, you know, they're on a swimming squad plus, you know, so they swim five mornings a week plus they've got school. But if we can start to look at gaps in their schedule where we can make changes. So it really changes from individual to individual, family to family, but where possible working with the child on sort of the things that they can do. If we're looking at lifestyle, we're all well aware that diet and exercise are really important, but I find with anxiety and the nervous system, the one big thing that's overlooked is relaxation and these poor kids don't know how to relax at all. So looking at things that can be really useful and helpful there
1: the
0: teenagers that I speak to are like, oh, yeah, we did meditation at school, you know, just meditation. I've done that. It's kind of like we're trying to do the right thing in schools, but it's kind of going over their heads a little bit.
2: Yeah. And often there's a bit of stigma around mindfulness and meditation with the teenagers too. I've got teenagers myself and they're like, yeah, righto, whatever. Um, So, What I often talk to these kids about, especially if it's an anxiety picture, I'll describe their nervous system is like a race car. So they've been born into this world with a really strong nervous system that likes to race a thousand miles an hour, which isn't a bad thing, but we need to implement things in their day and their week that encourages that nervous system to put the brakes on because like a race car, you can't drive it and not stop or put it in the garage at night. We need that that down regulation happening. And then we really just discuss things that they like. So I'll often ask them about their hobbies and what they like doing because Truth is, meditation is any time that our brain is deep compressing and that we're sort of switched off for a bit. Um, we've all seen those little means of mindful versus mindful, and really, we're just trying to get kids to understand that. So, is it that they love reading, but they don't have a lot of time to read during the week? But could they commit to one page? during the school days and then perhaps, you know, whole chapters on the weekend. Do they enjoy time with their friends or do they enjoy time alone? Do they have a particular hobby that they like to do? Um, so really just sort of fleshing out what relaxation looks like. It's quite different for different people and I think one of the most difficult things we can ask an anxious teenager to do is to lay on their back and meditate for 20 minutes because it is it is really hard. Um, so Sometimes we can um, be a little bit negative when it comes to technology, but there are some great apps and podcasts and things that kids can listen to as part of their relaxation regime as well.
0: And what about from a nutritional point of view, you know, as far as causation is concerned? So certainly looking at
2: copper and zinc ratios, but I mean, we can even
0: supplement with
2: zinc and get great results without having to do sort of tests and and looking at, at copper levels. I do find that obviously magnesium is a favorite for a lot of practitioners, but ensuring that we're looking at all of the minerals. I think for a long time, we've shied away from things like potassium and sodium and calcium, because obviously there's research that, you know, dictates too much sodium causes cardiovascular risks, etc. But I do find with kids that whole profile of minerals is really effective. Um, neurotransmitters definitely fits into this picture. And I'm, I'm a huge fan of trying to nut out what's happening with neurotransmitters. It's a little bit tricky with children, uh, sort of primary school age. Um, We do need to be a little bit strategic with our questioning, but I do find that uh, once they hit teenage, um, those teenage years, we can use things like questionnaires, the MDA, et cetera, to sort of get an idea of where those neurotransmitters might be fitting. And then from a really simplistic perspective, If we're looking at neurotransmitters, essentially we're looking at amino acids as precursors, which often just brings us right on back to protein, and I would say protein um, inadequacy is high on the list of things that we need to address with all patients that I see, adults and children. Um, Most Australians don't eat enough protein, which then will impact on um, things like amino acids and our neurotransmitter balance.
0: I know that everyone is different and you have to approach every case differently, but is there like a core set of nutrients that you find really work well in most cases? Yeah, I've certainly got my favourites. Zinc's high on the agenda. And if I'm
2: looking at boys in particular, they respond to zinc quite quickly. I do quite like using powdered nutrients too because it gives us the ability to kind of mix various different nutrients together. Um, Vitamin B6, fits in quite often with kids. So sometimes it's a matter of looking at a zinc supplement that includes B6. Magnesium I do like, but I have transitioned in recent times to using more of a profile of minerals rather than just the zinc or the magnesium on their own. And glycine is wonderful when it comes to kids. It looks like sugar and it tastes like sugar, so most kids will take it. But I do get really, really good results with their little nervous system and and glycine supplementation. And then occasionally um, N-acetylcysteine has a a, a role to play with with kids and, and mental health.
0: I asked Dr. Layla Mason what her approach is to supplementation.
1: So in my first appointment, I go over the lifestyle and I do the testing. And if I clearly, clearly have an indication that there are deficiencies, I already start with some supplements. So if the child clearly is, you know, covered in white spots on the fingernails and very easily frustrated and explosive and constantly sick and doesn't have much of an appetite, then I'll say do the blood test. But as soon as you've done it, start the zinc. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And if the child clearly has that very dry skin or cradle cap or the sandpaper, keratosis pilaris, I will start them on omega-3 right away.
0: Mm.
1: And if they have a terrible gut flora, I may order, you know, test for pathogens, but start them on, if they're constipated, for example, on some probiotics already. And another one that I often start very early on is magnesium. Because I think magnesium, I mean, we can get enough magnesium through the diet, but very few people get it. 60% of Australians are magnesium deficient. And I mean, I always, you know, say a handful of nuts and seeds a day, (laughs) whole grain, five (laughs) handfuls of vegetables a day. If you do that, you get enough magnesium. But It may take the child quite a while to get there. So I start them on either magnesium bath, like Epsom salt or on a magnesium cream or maybe a magnesium powder. And Mm. usually that helps them to sleep better, less anxiety. If they get sore legs, you know, like those groin pains, then, you know, that's also a sign of magnesium deficiency. And then if that's resolved, they sleep better as well.
0: Two other conditions that Dr. Mason treats regularly is OCD and ODD or Oppositional Defiant Disorder. Um, So when you're looking at something like OCD, is that mostly associated with the PANS like you you mentioned before, or is it a standalone condition that you find in your clinic?
1: Well, you can have it as a standalone condition Mm. as well, for sure. But um, I happen to see a lot of children with PANS because there are not that many pediatricians who treat it. So, you know, a lot of them get referred to me and it's usually a very clear history of, you know, they had a sore throat and 10 days later, suddenly this child who was always happy and healthy became incredibly anxious, refused to leave the house or their room even and severe OCD behaviors, changes in handwriting, starting to urinate all the time. You know, there are kind Mm -hmm. of a lot of different uh, symptoms that they can show that are quite typical, but you can have OCD on its own. But I do think that, you know, whatever happens in the brain, whatever you have as a symptom, whether it's OCD or anxiety, in the end if you looked at it under the microscope, would be inflammation. So in different parts of the brain. And if you can reduce that inflammation by finding whatever caused it or just, you know, reducing inflammation of all with a healthy diet, maybe some vitamin D and omega-3, some curcumin, there's, you know, so many different things you can do to reduce inflammation. But I would say diet is number one then, you know, those symptoms often get better. With OCD, I find anacetylcysteine very, very helpful. You know, there are good studies to show that it helps with kids that pull out their hair or their eyebrows and it's a mitochondrial support and an anti-inflammatory and antioxidants. And what about oppositional defiant disorder? You mentioned that is one of the ones that you treat. How often do you see that? Quite often. I, actually, my older son, who's now 24 and amazing, the nicest person you could meet, <laughs> used to be very opposition defined. So I developed a real interest in that <laughs> when he was younger. <laughs> and, you know, what it turned out with him was severe zinc deficiency. He was so zinc deficient that um, while well, his fingernails were covered with white spots, his skin never healed. So whenever he got mm-hmm. a mosquito bite, it just stayed as a sore. And, you know, so he would have many, many sores on his legs. And I never understood, because this was before I got interested in nutritional and environmental medicine, mm-hmm. why his skin was so bad. And it mm-hmm. was zinc deficiency. And once that was fixed, he was fine. You know, it mm-hmm. really was... That's simple. I mean, mm. I think the other thing he had was about gut flora because because of the zinc deficiency, yes. he had quite a few infections and therefore some antibiotics, which in affected his gut flora. Mm. So, but I find ODD, opposition to fine disorder, actually is often the easiest to treat. You know, the children who come in with, you know, low frustration tolerance, exploding all the time, they oppositional are the ones that respond the fastest to, you know, some zinc, mm. making sure all their nutrients are in the optimal range, iron B12, vitamin D, all that. Looking at lead because it's, and mercury, because those are typical triggers for that kind of behavior. And gut flora. And then, of course, all those, you know, lifestyle interventions we talked to. And, and positive parenting. I think you can so easily get into a negative cycle with parenting a difficult child where, you know, the child screams and yells and then you start screaming and yelling and that makes things just worse. Mm. Whereas if you can take yourself out of it and just say, I'm just going to take a break and, you know, I love you, but I can't stand that behaviour, I'll be back. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I very often recommend the Triple P Positive Parenting Programme, which was developed mm. at the University of Queensland. And I noticed that you are an advocate of positive parenting.
0: Do you talk a lot about that in your consultations with parents?
1: Yes, definitely. And I give them little tricks to start with. I often refer them well, to their Triple P Parenting Program, but also to psychologists who can work with them mm. one-on-one. But, um, you know, just a simple thing as, you know, having, it's called the marble jar mm-hmm. <laughs> exercise or intervention where you just have a, a glass jar sitting on the kitchen counter or somewhere where everyone can see it. And then you come, you decide on one behavior you want to change. For example, you know, that little Johnny stops hitting little Sophie. (laughs) (laughs) And and then every time he plays nicely with her, you just say, oh, you did that so well. And in the beginning, maybe just three minutes of playing nicely. He said, you did that so well. I'm going to put a marble in the marble jar. And you make both. You actually reward all the children in the household so that it's Mm -hmm. something they do together. Mm -hmm. And when the marble jar is full, they get a reward like going to the beach or whatever you decided before and that you wanted to do anyway, but <laughs> you, you package it up as a big treat and the kids get into that. And it is, you know, just so that repeti- repetition of rewarding, positive behavior, the children actually get into it. And then you, the next week you choose something a little bit more difficult, maybe, or a little bit more involved. And you make that and you make it known, you know, to the children what you're rewarding so that they know what they're working on. Mm-hmm.
0: In the next episode of Between Clinical Minds, we continue the conversation on mental health, this time with Melbourne nutritionist and researcher Jessica Bays, Brisbane nutritionist Deborah Smart, and we'll hear again from naturopath Emma Wisby. We cover depression and the Mediterranean diet, sleep disturbance and tick disorders. Thank you for listening. We hope this podcast engaged and empowered you. And thank you to all of our experts. You can read more information on each of them on our website, bioconceptsengage.com.au. If you enjoyed this episode of Between Clinical Minds, please refer a friend and share the love. To continue the conversation, you can contact us at bioconceptsengage.com.au where community is more than a concept.